Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, we met some nice people and decided to go on a starship ride with them, watched yet another world burn, and talked about possible lawsuits involving the Jeep Wrangler. Now, in episode 25, we get to know Dantooine, meet the Jedi Enclave Council, and leave Dantooine, all in the span of one episode. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey. And there's always a bit of truth in legends. Before we go further, a brief note, we have some stickers with the show's logo and we're giving them away, literally. All you need to do is leave a written review of the show and we'll send you two stickers with the Photor People History of the Old Republic logo. doesn't even have to be a five-star review. You can be honest. Not, don't be super honest, right? No Sith Lords here. We don't want, we do have feelings. Be nice. But... Be honest, leave a review, let us know, take a screenshot of your review and DM it to at Photorpod on Twitter, or you can email it to photorpodcast at gmail.com, and then we'll send you two stickers. Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, Part 3, Dantooine. All right, let's start with a couple things we missed on Terrace. First, we skipped over the duelists, mostly because they're just target practice and we didn't have that much time, but we did forget to mention Bendak's Starkiller. Bendak only fights in duels to the death, and after Revan defeats the other duelists, he can challenge Starkiller to a no-holds-barred match. The Hutt crime lord Zax arranges the illegal duel, and Revan, regardless of tactics, wins easily. However, in order to fight Bendak Starkiller, Revan has to take a minus one alignment penalty, moving him incrementally closer to the dark side. As we're all aware of by now, Revan made only light side choices in the canonical playthrough, so he wouldn't have fought Bendak Starkiller. That's the reason we didn't bring it up last week. It's definitely not because we just forgot. Second, there's a great bit of companion interaction on Terrace after Bastila Shen joins Karth and Revan. Onassi has some questions for Bastila. How did a bunch of no-account street thugs take a powerful Jedi Knight? Was she unconscious? What about her lightsaber? Well, now in Bastila's defense, um, she had used battle meditation to boost her forces during the Sith attacks, and her help likely saved Onassi and Revan. Bastila's use of the force was taxing, and she was too exhausted to fend off the Black Volkers when they arrived. Okay, fair enough. But a Jedi of Shan's power could easily defeat some biker gang with her trusty lightsaber. Eh, but Bastila explains that she didn't have her lightsaber because it fell off her belt in the landing and rolled under her seat. This sends Karth into hysterics and all of Revan's dialogue options are joking on Bastila too. The Jedi Knight, who was the biggest factor in the Republic Jedi resurgence during the Jedi Civil War, was kidnapped by some street toughs because her lightsaber rolled too far away. You know, like when your phone falls under a seat in the car and you can't reach it. Jedi Knights, they're just like us. This also explains why the Black Volkers thought she was a Republic commander, because Jedi always carry lightsabers. Somewhere Karth is probably still laughing at Bastila. In the last episode on Terrace, Revan joined up with six of his nine possible companions. Nice. Karth Onasi, Bastila Shan, Mission Vau, Zalbar, T3M4, and Kandor's Ordo. 
the group stole an ultra-fast light freighter called the Ebon Hawk and escaped Terrace just before Darth Malak rained fire, bombarding the planet until no structure stood that was taller than two stories. We helped a lot of people with their problems, which was nice. And kind of seems hollow since everyone we met on the planet died under a barrage of Sith turbolaser fire and rubble. Well, except the outcasts, who did escape the Undercity for a supposed promised land, thanks to an assist from Revan and Karth. Seriously, though, everyone we helped out on Terrace got to enjoy it for a few hours before Malak came in, threw out all the subtext, and wiped the pathetic planet from the face of the galaxy. Our heroes made their escape and jumped to light speed, bound for the remote bucolic world of Dantooine where nothing bad ever happens. After landing, the party is set as Revan, Karth, and Bastila for the time being, and the trio huddles up to discuss next steps. Revan and Karth seem unconvinced that a world like Dantooine could provide any protection, since it's essentially rolling grasslands and no real settlements outside the Enclave. But Bastila argues that they need to use the Jedi Council for help, and that they can't just run from Malak forever. Besides, even the Sith would think twice before attacking Dantooine. Shan's argument proved persuasive, and she left to discuss recent developments with the Council, which doesn't sound shady at all. Later, Karth and Revan are still waiting outside the ship in an unskippable cutscene when Bastila runs back and breathlessly declares that the Jedi Council requests an audience with Revan. Karth is beside himself, an audience with the Jedi Council? That's pretty unusual for someone who isn't even a Jedi. What's this about Bastila? Shan waves him off, claiming it's Jedi business that Anasi isn't privy to. Then the whole group, including Karth, runs off to talk with the Council. Location Profile Dantooine First mentioned in A New Hope, the Outer Rim world Dantooine is central to both Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2. And when Grand Moff Tarkin said it was remote, he really meant it. Dantooine resides on the farthest northern reaches, reaches of the galaxy, along the Viragi, Viragi, I don't even know, trade route, a spur of the Hydean Way. Indeed, the only system of consequence farther north is Sermpadal. Despite this distance, the idyllic world of grassland continents and pristine oceans was strong in the force and became a beacon for that reason. Tens of, th- tens of thousands of years before the Jedi Civil War, Dantooine was one of the dozens of worlds that suffered under the oppressive rule of the Rakatan Infinite Empire. The Rakata built structures on the planet, including a star map which flowed with dark side energy. The planet was home to the Dantari, a primitive species of near-humans who resembled cavemen, but the Rakata enslaved many species and forcibly immigrated them to, the- to many worlds, including Dantooine. After the Infant Empire fell, Dantooine remained quiet until a Jedi master named Vodosias Boss discovered a cave rich in lightsaber crystals and founded his small training enclave there in four uh, in four thousand sixteen BBY. After Vodo was killed in thirty nine ninety six, the Jedi added to his enclave, establishing a full training academy and a satellite enclave council with four members. Later in 3962, a former Jedi turned Mandalorian named Dorjander Case attempted to kidnap the younglings on Dantooine to create a team of Force-sensitive Mandalorians. Case's plan was foiled by Zane Carrick. In 3961, Revan and Malak entered the Rakatan ruins, finding the first piece of the star map. Finally, in 3957, Basilashan brought the unconscious Darth Revan before the Dantooine Council, and the Masters decided to wipe his mind. 
3956, the still amnesiac Revan landed on Dantooine after he and his companions escaped Terrace. All right. Finally, time to get some answers from this vaunted Dantooine council. Hold up, a twilight named Lur Arcasulis has pressing matters to discuss. Seems that the local farmer's daughter, Sasha, was kidnapped by Mandalorians a few years ago, and the family wants her back. Lur represents the farmer and will give a reward for any information about Sasha. Eventually, this leads Revan investigating dwindling supplies in the stowaway on the Ivan Hawk, which turns out to be a young girl who speaks an almost indecipherable mix of the Mandalorian language, Mandoa, and Galactic Basic. If Revan is patient and not dark side inclined, the girl will identify herself as Sasha and can then be reunited with her father after another long conversation with Lara Arcasulis. We don't know how old she is or how long she was kidnapped, long ago she was kidnapped, but they seem to recognize her, so it's good enough for us. Sasha is also the source of a dark side points farming glitch. At one point, the player can order Sasha to leave the ship, moving Revan closer to the dark side, then stop her before she gets off the even hawk, only to order her to leave again. That's for a dark side Revan or a Revan who went a little too far light and needed to move back into a nice, comfortable gray. Okay, good. Now we can move on to meet the Jedi Masters and nope, stopped by another NPC. This green Twi'lek is this Disra Lur Java, and he is most unhelpful until you want to find the mysterious Crystal Cave. It's located south of the Sandral Fields, just FYI. All right, now that we're moving on from that, it's finally time to be interrupted again because Revan isn't in regulation attire. A Jedi Knight named Malaya stops Revan and castigates him for not wearing his Jedi robes like a good little Padawan. But jokes on Belaya since Revan is obviously not Force-sensitive and certainly not a member of the Jedi Order. Belaya then apologizes profusely because she had assumed Revan was a Jedi due to a powerful connection to the Force. Now, time to get some answers out of this damn Jedi Council. Oh, just kidding. We still have character profiles from Terrace to complete. Character profile Candorous Ordo. A promising soldier seemingly from birth, Candorus of Clan Ordo, would go on to become one of the greatest Mandalorians ever. Candorus was born some time before the outbreak of the Great Sith War in 3996, and came of age during the high point of Mandalorian civilization. Little is known about the specifics of his early life, but we know he was recruited to join the Neo-Crusaders by Mandalore the Ultimate during his build-up on Duxun. In 3976, when the Mandalorian Wars began in, began in the Outer Rim, Ordo fought valiantly at the First Battle of Althir. There, Candorus led a group of Mandalorian warriors against an Althiri fleet that outnumbered them ten to one. After a brief grueling fight, Ordo saw his opening when the Althiri split their force into leaving their center open for attack. Leaving his position, Ordo led most of his squad into the opening, defeating the enemy commander and ending the battle early. While this move won him renowned in the command of an entire complement of Clan Ordo forces, it also left a small contingent of his warriors unprotected. Their soldiers were slaughtered by the Althiri, save a single Mandalorian. The survivor of that event, named Jaggy, or Yagi, I don't know, held a grudge against Candorus for 20 years until Revan landed on Tatooine and became part of Ordo's, and it became part of Ordo's companion loyalty quest. Candorus was the perfect Mandalorian Neo-Crusader, but then things got weird. At some point during the Mandalorian Wars, possibly as late as 3963, Candorus was leading a group of warriors across an asteroid belt in the Crispin system to confront smugglers and pirates, 
who were using the asteroid belt for cover. The Mandalorians defeated the brigands easily, but then one of the asteroids changed direction and attacked. At least it really looked like an asteroid. The unknown craft fired molten thermal projectiles that melted through Mandalorian armor, but fled the system before the Mandalorians could return fire. The asteroid starship fled past the Crispin asteroid belt, which served as the border between the known galaxy and the intergalactic void just outside the system. Now, if you're familiar with the EU, that asteroid starship may remind you of a Yuzan Vaughn coral skipper ship, which is apparently what it was. In case you don't know, the Vong are an extragalactic race of religious fundamentalist humanoid aliens who despise technology and used only organic technology to fight. Around 15,000 BBY, the Vong devolved into civil war, eventually destroying every habitable planet in their galaxy. The Krimlevian Wars, it came to be known, caused their living homeworld to strip the Vong of their ability to touch the Force. Following the destruction of their galaxy, they entered sleeper ships, crossed at least one intergalactic void, and in 25 ABY invaded the galaxy far, far away. This holy war would last for four years and kill more than 365 trillion beings, nearly destroying the New Republic too. Now, that's all a very long way to say, and it's very odd that an advanced scout ship would enter the galaxy nearly 4,000 years before the main Yuzinvong fleet, especially since coral skipper ships were short-range fighters and needed a nearby base or mothership with which to embark. Regardless, the reference to the Vong is still present in Knights of the Old Republic. There are a few little references in this game, and and that's my that's one of my favorite ones just because of how weird it is. The Vong or something that digression notwithstanding Candor's ordo fought valiantly throughout the Mandal- throughout the entirety of the mandalorian wars he also later told revan that the mandalorian use of scorched earth tactics troubled him greatly uh, ordo would come to despise the republic for its weakness in the face of the mandalorian o- onslaught though he did respect revan and some of the jedi for their martial prowess in turning the war around Little is known about Ordo's time in the Mandalorian Wars as he was very guarded about his past. However, we know he was there at the end. In 3960, Candorus led forces at the Battle of Malachor V and and was one of the very few Mandalorians to survive as he was just outside the mass shadow generator's blast radius. At some point after the war, he was exiled from Clan Ordo and had to leave his wife and people behind. By 3956, Candorus had taken up the mercenary life that most Mandalorians embraced following Malachor V. He worked for the crime lord Davik Kang, looking to test his skills in battle once again, but he found no worthy battles on Terrace. Finally, in Jivar's cantina, he met a random Republic soldier who had just wiped out the Black Volker gang, helped rescue a Jedi, and won the Terrace season opener despite never racing swoop bikes before. Candorus saw many worthy opponents in this Republic soldier's future and decided to join him. That brings us to Canon Alert 24. The Mandalorian World Ordo was made canon by the 2018 reference book Scum and Villainy. The planet was home to a storehouse called the Archaic Arsenal, which contained many relics, including a Mandalorian Rally Master Spear that was later stolen. The spear would later end up in the possession of Dryden Voss, the public image of the crime syndicate Crimson Dawn. Boss was played by Paul Bettany in the 2018 anthology film Solo. 
planet served as Candor's Ordo's birthplace in Legends, but his character was not canonized. Just the planet. Not yet. Canon Alert 25. Hot on the heels of that short when we're finally going to do an alert we've overlooked for some time. Mandalorian Rally Masters and their armor were canonized by the film Solo and his visual dictionary written by Pablo Hidalgo. In Solo, the crime lord Dryden Voss keeps a near-complete set of crimson Mandalorian rally armor aboard his yacht, prominently displayed just in case a cool fight sequence breaks out. Despite going unnamed in the film, the visual dictionary confirmed it was indeed Mandalorian armor that dated back to the Old Republic. This is by far the most screen time that any Old Republic reference has received so far with the armor being displayed during most of Solo's climactic fight scene. Of course, most people don't know it was an Old Republic reference, but that's not the point, damn it. The Mandalorian rally armor includes a helmet and upper body armor, but is missing pieces from the lower body. In Legends, Rally Masters wore red suits of armor and served as battlefield commanders for Mandalorian forces, and they also served the same purpose in canon according to the Visual Dictionary. We've discussed the armor a few times because of its prominence in the film, but we hadn't done a proper canon alert yet, and such an injustice could not stand. Also, we just plain forgot until this episode, and it fit in here better than anywhere else until the end of the series, because when we said that the Mandalorians were done after Malachor V, we weren't kidding. Alright, so back to that enclave. It's time for answers. Really. As much as we're going to joke on the Jedi Enclave Council from now until the end of Knights of the Old Republic 2, we must admit that the main council chamber of the Enclave is beautiful. A wide round room with a long meeting table and a a number of large chairs set on a dais in between two living trees that resemble forest trees set into niches in the back wall. As Revan runs in, the Jedi Enclave Council stands before him with Dorak, Vandar Toker, Vruk Lamar, and Tsar Lustin arrayed from left to right. Bastila, meanwhile, stands to the left of Dorak. Lustin thanks Revan for rescuing Bastila, but calls her a Padawan, even though she later says she thought the Council sent her with Revan as a test for promotion to Jedi Master. Regardless, Revan is one burning question that probably occurred to a lot of people when playing this game for the first time. How the hell are there two Jedi Councils? I've seen the Phantom Menace and the Attack of the Clones. I know there's one council and it's on Coruscant. Um, it's, you know, the rough approximation of Revan's question. Lustin confirms that the High Council sits on Coruscant, where, as they are but a satellite council that controls the Enclave on Dantooine. Now that the biggest question has been answered, the council can also inform Revan that he's a wizard. Jedi, you know, whatever. And possibly the least shocking reveal in this game, it turns out that the player character is Force-sensitive. What a coincidence, right? All the Masters are very nice about this. all of this, except, of course, for Vruk Lamar. The aged human Jedi was voiced by TV actor Ed Asner, and he did a wonderful job making Vruk Lamar sound like the crotchetiest old Jedi to ever live. He's even more crotchety than Mace Windu, which is saying a lot. Master Lamar is concerned that Revan is too old and worries. What if we undertake to train this one and the Dark Lord should return? They're also worried about Revan's age, but this is a video game, so he's accepted anyway. Character Profile Jedi Enclave Council Even though the actual enclave dates back to around 
4016 BBY, the four-member Dantooine Council was formed in 3996 following Master Voto's death. After the decimation of Ossus that same year, the Jedi High Council convened on Coruscant for the first time, but the distance was too great to provide oversight and training to the students on Dantooine. Thus, a satellite council was created to train Jedi and expand the academy. Over its 45-year history, the council had numerous members, including, including Farouk Lamar, Vandar Toker, Dorak, Zar Leston, a Selkath master named Qual, and more. Oddly, Jedi masters could serve on both the Dantooine and Coruscant, Canc- Coruscant councils simultaneously, as both Lamar and Toker illustrated. Our earliest look at the council came in 3993 at the conclusion of the Great Hunt, which sought to eliminate the last of the Sith spawn. The council ordered Jedi Knights Durin Keldroma, Shayla Nur, and Gunhan Suresh to kill the Terentatech on Korriban. In 3997, in 3977, Master Tokar agreed to admit a five-year-old Zane Carrick for training, despite his perceived middling strength in the Force. The council was given authority to oversee the Jedi Tower Academy on Terrace after its completion around 3976. In 3964, as the Mandalorian Wars were breaking out in the Republic, the Dantooine Enclave Council became embroiled in the Padawan massacres when Zane Carrick sought, to, sought help from Master Toker. Eventually, Carrick's father, Arvin, would become the Enclave's accountant, overseeing its meager finances. Later in 3963, Masters Lamar and Toker became fully involved in the investigation into the Padawan Massacre. The two Masters didn't trust Lucian Dre or the other terrorist Jedi Masters and went on to assist Carrick during the attempted Jedi Covenant coup. Lamar even went so far as to lead a team of of Jedi loyal to the High Council in battle against the Covenant. While the Dantooine Enclave Council no doubt did much good, it will go down in history as the stupidest Jedi Council ever. Even worse than the councils of the prequel trilogy that let the Dark Lord of the Sith hang around for 20 years without figuring it out. You're thinking, how could they be worse than the council that allowed Order 66? The answer is, very carefully, their sins are mostly acts of omission, but great power something something great responsibility. Revan and Malak's fall to the dark side likely began on Dantooine when they uncovered Rakuten ruins. These are the same ruins that Master Toker would later say the Enclave Council believed to be simple burial mounds. However, the ruins were coursing with dark side power that Malak felt, so how the hell did they miss a dark side nexus in their own midst? Even the prequel council knew of the dark side shrine under the Jedi Temple. The Enclave Council failed to properly monitor the Terrace Jedi Tower Academy and the five Terrace Masters, aka the First Watch Circle. They didn't even seem to notice that four of the five masters were seers until Zane Carrick pointed it out in 3964, more than five years after the first Watch Council began working on Terrace. Incidentally, their failure to properly oversee the five Terrace masters led to the Padawan Massacre, which is blamed on Zane Carrick after he witnessed the event and fled. Carrick's escape sparked planet-wide riots, which led to the Terrace masters being reassigned to separate parts of the galaxy. Removing the Five Masters meant the Jedi had abandoned Terrace, which Mandalore the Ultimate took as his sign to invade the Republic. The Mandalorian Wars then caused the Jedi Civil War, which in turn led to the Sith Civil War and the First Jedi Purge. When that purge was over, there were about eight Jedi left alive in the galaxy, compared to the 200-plus that survived Order 66. 
And all of that was before we even get to their decisions during the Jedi Civil War. Mind-wiping an unconscious Darth Revan and giving him a new identity in hopes that he will somehow regain his knowledge of the Starforge through a series of chance encounters is a terribly short-sighted idea, regardless of its overall success. You don't judge a decision by the outcome, you judge a decision based on the quality of the decision itself, but maybe that's too harsh because we got a really fun video game out of it. Even if you're fine with that decision, the Jedi had no qualms about sending a guy who had already fallen to the dark side once into numerous situations where he would walk perilously close to the darkness. This includes sending him to Korriban, sending him to face his old apprentice Darth Malak, and sending him to the tainted grove of Dantooine. Then there's Juhani, whose story is going to be a little disjointed due to how our narrative is, but just stick with us. Shortly before the Evan Hawks' arrival, the Enclave Council allowed and approved of Quatra's unorthodox plan to put Juhani, her apprentice, through the Jedi Trials. Quatra believed she had nothing left to teach Juhani and decided to test her humility by engaging in a lightsaber duel. When Jahani gave in to her rage and struck down her master, she fled, believing the council would kill her for falling to the dark side. Then the council let her act as a dark side focus, tainting the Dantooine Grove until Revan came along and they sent him to deal with it. After Revan redeemed Jahani, she was welcomed back by the Enclave Council and promoted because she passed the test. Then the council informed her that Quatra, her master, was still alive and had already taken on new apprentices because she knew Juhani would eventually pass the test. So Quatra faked dying just to, just, just to, to test Juhani. Aside from the fact that this whole lightsaber duel Jedi trial thing was the exact way Fred and Ned fell to the dark side around 4400 BBY, which restarted the Sith cause in the galaxy after 600 years of lying dormant, it's also an incredibly shitty thing to do to Jahani. If you think we're piling on the Jedi Enclave Council, you ain't seen nothing yet. All told, the Enclave was responsible for the training of six fallen Jedi, two under Master Vodo, and four under the Council. Exer Kun, Crado, Revan, Malak, Juhani, and Bastila Shan. They would have also trained some of the hundreds of Dark Jedi who bent the knee to Revan's new Sith Empire. Now, this isn't to say that all the masters on the Enclave Council were bad or that they did any of this purposefully. They were mostly good Jedi masters. Vandar Toker, the diminutive master of Yoda's species, was Zane Carrick's only Jedi ally for much of his journey to clear his name. Twilight Master Zara Lustin was one of the most respected masters ever and at one point defeated Dorchander Case in a lightsaber duel while defending the Enclave and the Younglings from a Mandalorian invasion. Lustin was only defeated after the Mandalorians threatened to destroy the Enclave from orbit. Dorek was a human male who was a chronicler for the Enclave and assisted countless younglings in choosing the proper lightsaber crystal. Sadly, all three perished at Qatar in 30. 952, along with about 95% of the rest of the Jedi Order. There's Master Qual, who served on the Council in 3993 and was a Selkath and Selkath are cool, so he gets a pass too. The big exception here is Rook Lamar. In short, Master Lamar had one redeeming act in his time, and that was leading the Jedi loyal to the Council in the charge against Covenant Jedi Stronghold during the Knights of the Republic comics. He's a jerk at every turn, has terrible instincts, and in 3951, would die at the rebuild Dantooine Enclave for his intransigence. Ah. Lamar and two others, the only three Jedi Masters still living in the entire galaxy, refused to see the truth about Mitra Surik. But Darth Trya showed them. Boy, howdy did she show them. 
Anyway, we'll talk a lot more about how much the Jedi suck when we get to Knights of the Old Republic 2. Oh, there's going to be a whole episode. It's going to be great. I can just continue beating these dead horses that I, that I beat. Yeah. After all that, we come back to the game and find Revan is having another strange Force vision. This time, we are treated to a flashback to the late Mandalorian Wars. In 3961, we see Revan and Malak first entering the ruins on Dantooine to find a star map. Malak, still sporting his original jaw, is uncharacteristically nervous about entering the ruins. He believes that the Order will banish them for entering the Forbidden Ruins, but Revan, in trademark black robes and mask, has already unsealed the door with the Force. As the duo... As the duo enter, a strange object begins to open and show them some kind of star map. Then the vision ends. Revan again wakes to find Carthonassi, who says that Bastila already left and said to join her in the council chambers. Now Revan is finally free to choose new companions and then immediately be stuck in a long dialogue with the council and then a cutscene. In the dialogue, Revan learns that Bastila had the same vision and felt Revan's presence in the vision too. It seems that Revan and Bastila are linked by a powerful force bond, and that's why they experience the vision simultaneously. The Council views this bond as a gift, and they believe it's time for Revan Revan to start his Jedi training, since the number of Jedi in the galaxy is dwindling rapidly. They are concerned Darth Malak and the Sith will eventually find and destroy the hidden refuge on Dantooine, which really makes no sense because Malak trained there as a boy and visited the planet as recently as 3961, but what are you going to do? As Revan's initiation into the Order begins, it's time for an 80s, tr- 80s montage of Jedi training. Cue your favorite 80s synth classic. We're going to use John Cafferty's Hearts on Fire from the Rocky Four montage and hum along with us. Of course, we won't actually be using it because we want to avoid paying for licensed music. Thus, Revan and Bastila spar. They walk and talk. Revan spends a lot of time in the library and also learns how to levitate books and nearly, ach- and nearly achieves floating levitation, which is pretty uncommon for apprentices. If you want to know how long Revan's training lasted, the answer is we simply don't know. Following the montage, Revan knocks to Dorak, the Jedi Chronicler, and gets a lot of exposition and background on the Great Sith War, the Mandalorian Wars, and the Jedi Civil War, all of which occurred in the preceding 40 years. We will spare you most of the dialogue, since you're a dedicated listener and heard us talk through all these wars from Episode 5 to Episode 22, though there are a few interesting takeaways. We get our first mention of Exar Kun, an allusion to the true unseen threat in the Outer Rim that spurred on the Mandalorians to war, and find out that the Jedi have no clue about the Starforge. That unseen threat will come up multiple times throughout Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2, but was supposed to have been the basis for the enemy Knights of the Old Republic 3, but instead became the Sith Emperor of the Old Republic MMO. We'll talk much more about that later. Master Verklamar is also present to belittle Revan and then say something quite curious. Quote, When Revan fell, Malak took up the mantle of the Dark Lord of the Sith. Should Malak be stopped? What is to stop another Jedi from taking his place? This is the burden we masters must carry, end quote. It's very similar to Yoda's quote to Luke about failure being the greatest teacher in The Last Jedi. I'll save those comparisons for uh, Knights of the Old Republic too. As Revan's training winds down, it's time to begin the Jedi Trials. The trials changed greatly over the years and were highly informal until 1000 BBY when the 
when the Rusan reformations began. However, since we're in the Old Republic, the Jedi trials were still arduous tasks of monumental skill that Menai Jedi did not successfully complete. Revan's begin simply enough. You must recite the Jedi Code from memory. If you just recited the code to yourself, congratulations, you're one-third of the way to becoming a Jedi. Next, Revan gets to do the best and coolest thing of all, build a lightsaber. Character profile T3 and 4. Random break for a character profile from Terrace again. What can we say? Every Star Wars every Star Wars story needs a good droid. Originally built by Janice Nall on Terrace in 3956, T3 and4 was made to be a top slicing and security hacking astromech droid. He was one of the most advanced droids of the time and could mount weapons and was fully upgradable. We pretty much covered everything that happened in T3's life last episode. He was built for Davit Kang to enter the Sith base, but Kendra's Ordo betrayed Kang and gave the droid over to Revan instead. T3 assisted Revan with breaking into the Sith base and then made the escape from Terrace aboard the Ebon Hawk. Despite it only communicating in boops and whistles, T3 would become a beloved member of the team. In yet another reference to the original trilogy, another droid could be purchased in... Uh, could be purchased while T3 was on hold for Davit King, but it would malfunction immediately. Just like R2-D2, T3 would not receive a memory wipe after coming into Revan's service for the rest of his life. Master Doric gives a spiel about the vague differences between a Jedi Consular, a Jedi Sentinel, and a Jedi Guardian. They aren't much in the game, basically just a mage with a green lightsaber, a battle mage with a yellow lightsaber, and a warrior with a blue lightsaber. On the surface, Revan's choice is purely cosmetic, but each class does make subtle changes to the basic attributes and add new feats. You can look those up yourself because we draw the line at discussing d20 roll values on the show. It's too tedious, even for us. But what's really important is building a lightsaber and finally turning it on for the first time. That slight buzz and electric hum as it glides its blade effortlessly through the air, reminding you of the first time Luke activated his dad's lightsaber in The New Hope. Okay, it's... Just a cutscene, but give us a break, like you haven't wanted to build one of those things since you first fell in love with the franchise. After Revan finishes, all the masters except Vuk Lamar comment on his exceptionally crafted lightsaber. It's almost like he's done this sort of thing before. Master Leston even comments that there may there are unconfirmed reports of crystal caves on Dantooine, like the one that sits maybe 30 yards from the Enclave entrance. With lightsaber construction complete, Revan is now two-thirds of the way to being a Jedi. Those first steps were easy, right? So the third one should be a breeze. Probably fending off some farmer's crops from raiding Mandalorians or, you know, reuniting a grieving woman with a sex robot. You know, the normal quests. But the Jedi Council has something different in mind for Revan. They are going to send him into the ancient grove to cleanse it of the strong dark side taint that resides therein. The Masters won't say what this nexus of the dark side is and send Revan out to face it along with two companions of his choosing, excluding Bastula. Now, in the game, you have to work your way south past a bunch of cath hounds and side quests, but we're not so constrained, so we're just going right to the ancient grove. We already discussed Juhani's background and why she's in the grove, but just pretend to be shocked by all this, okay? Finally, we come face-to-face with this dark side nexus, and will become a Padawan in the Jedi Order. As Revan enters the grove, he finds a Cathar meditating in the center of a series of stone monoliths. 
before Revan can even try and talk things out, the Cathar uses the force to freeze both of his companions and then attacks him with a red lightsaber. The duel is fierce and prolonged, with both Revan and the Cathar dealing heavy blows to the other, though Revan does eventually get to the upper hand. After Revan reduced her health by 75%, the Cathar stops the duel and introduces herself as Jahani. She tells the story of how she slew her master after giving in to her anger and then fled to the ancient grove to meditate in her dark power. No, wor- no word on how long Jahani had been- was out there before the council sent Revan to deal with it, but it was enough time to find two red lightsaber crystals. So it must have been at least a little bit of time. Unless she stole the red crystals, but that really doesn't matter. Revan, being a good guy, refrains from executing Jahani and instead attempts to redeem her. If he answers Jahani's ever-branching dialogue tree in the correct order, the Cathar will see the error of her ways and agree to return to face the council. If, however, you're like many players, you thought the idea of cleansing the grove just meant to kill Jahani, in which case you killed her and missed out on a great companion, or was that just me uh, during the first playthrough? Uh, anyway, that was and that was a long time ago. 16 years. Good Lord. I was still living with my parents. Uh, returning to the council, Jahani is welcome back to the order. Now, brief aside, usually the trials come after being a Padawan and are undertaken to earn the promotion from Padawan to Apprentice, but that was fleshed out during the prequels and especially in the Clone Wars animated series, while Knights of the Old Republic was written after the Phantom Menace debut, but before Attack of the Clones, so we'll give it a pass. All right. Character profile Jahani. The Cathar Jedi was born on the Outer Rim world Cathar at some point just before 3973 BBY. In that year, Jahani and her family were among the few who escaped Cathar as Cassus Fett and the Mandalorians committed genocide against the Cathar people. Jahani's parents landed on Terrace, but because they were non-human and didn't have much money, they lived meager lives. Then Jahani's father was baited into a fight and killed. Jahani's mother tried to support her daughter, but she couldn't work enough to make ends meet and ended up began taking usurious loans from the exchange. She got deep in debt and then died while working one of her jobs, so the exchange charged the mother's debt to the daughter who took and took Jahani into slavery. The event plays a central role in Jahani's companion loyalty quest. As she was about to be sold, help arrived in the form of Jedi Knights and Republic soldiers led by a purple lightsaber-wielding Jedi who wore a cool mask at all times named Revan. Jahani was rescued by Revan himself and... One of his Jedi encouraged her to join the Jedi Order after sensing the force in the young girl. Jahani couldn't turn down the opportunity and went to Dantooine to train. Jahani became the apprentice of Master Quatra, and though she was strong in the force, she doubted her ability to become a Jedi because she was quick-tempered. Another student, a human male named Dak Vesser, also doubted his place within the Order, and he and Jahani became very close friends. When Dak proposed leaving Dantooine to train on Korriban, Juhani considered it but ultimately decided to stay on Dantooine and declined Dak's romantic adv- advances, two acts that infuriated Vesser. During her time at the Enclave, Juhani became romantically involved with another, another student, a human female named Belaya. When they could steal time, the couple would lie into the vast grasslands and stare at the stars above Dantooine. Their feelings for one another grew so strong that the council forbade Belaya from attempting to redeem Jahani after she fell to the dark side, fearing that those strong feelings would backfire. 
That was apparently one of the council's better decisions because if Revan kills Jahani during their duel, Belias shows up on Korriban. She blames Revan for her fall and attacks, but is killed in the process. However, if Revan chooses the canonical light side path and sp- spares Jahani's life and then redeems her, the happy couple are reunited and go on to spend many years together. Just kidding, there are no happy endings here. Belia is presumed to have died in Malik's orbital bombardment of the Enclave, but her demise has never been confirmed. After that, Jahani's training continued apace until that whole kill your master, just kidding, Jedi trial thing. Okay, so point of interest, the importance of being Jahani. And the Catholic Jedi Jahani holds a special position in both Star Wars lore and video game history. As you may have already surmised, Jahani is a lesbian and is in an active, open relationship with the aforementioned Belaya. The Jedi don't seem to mind, well, some of them mind any Jedi in a relationship, but they don't mind the specific of the relationship. This makes Jahani the first confirmed LGBTQA character in Star Wars. To add another wrinkle here, and because it wouldn't be a Bioware RPG without romantic possibilities, a female Revan can romance Jahani. Now, this seems patently normal in 2019, or at least it should, but in 2003, it was a very big deal. So much so that Jahani was the first romanceable same-sex character in the history of video games, we think. It's the earliest one our crack research team could find, at least. Feel free to let us know if there are others. That's two major firsts for Jahani, and it's also a big part of what makes her important. Jahani brought representation to a community that was, without question, underrepresented if it was visible at all, especially in Star Wars and video games. This isn't just idle speculation on our part either. David Geider, who is credited as a writer on Knights of the Old Republic and as a lead writer for the Dragon Age series, says he was surprised and heartened by the inclusion of the character. In an essay for Polygon, Geider, who is gay, wrote that the inclusion of Johanni's backstory and her being romanceable shocked him. He always assumed it wasn't something that would come to gaming or something that game developers would be happy to include. However, the developers at Bioware did include it, and same-sex romances have been a hallmark of the company's RPGs for over a decade. Being a lesbian isn't Johanni's only characteristic, of course. She's a great companion, and it's always nice to have another Force user around when Bastille is removed later in the game. But it's important to note that the, and it's important that the LGBTQA Star Wars fan, gamers, and just people in general feel included by the art they consume, that they are represented and depicted in it in some way. If you're a straight white guy, you may be thinking such issues don't matter and you would be mistaken. Geither's essay is titled, quote, a character like me, end quote, and that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? We all want to see aspects of ourselves portrayed in the media we consume, and sexual orientation is no different. Jahani also served as a groundbreaking, groundbreaking character within the Star Wars universe. Following Jahani's appearance in 2003's Knights of the Old Republic, the Old Republic MMO had a number of LGBTQA romanceable characters, including Lord Scytherat, Lemda, Theron Sean, yes, it's the same family of Sean's, Koth Fortina, and Lana Benico. There was also a same-sex Mandalorian couple named Goran Bevan and Medrit Vassar in the Legacy of the Force novels. Jahani's legacy continues in canon as well, with Dr. Aphra, her lover Magna Tolvin, Moff Mars, a former Imperial named Sinjir, and at least a few more that we're forgetting. While Jahani's sexual orientation was not readily apparent to some who played Knights of the Old Republic, 
Whether they missed it in dialogue or they didn't romance her as a female Revan, it was an important inclusion for many players and fans. Interestingly, a glitch in the original game code allowed both male and female Revans to romance Jahani, leading some to the conclusion that she was bisexual. However, Revan, or not Revan, Jesus. However, Bioware later patched this glitch so that Jahani's character would only romance female player characters as intended. Some may complain about the inclusion of this kind of content in the show, but we don't care. Jahani is just another in a very long list of examples showing Star Wars was full of social justice commentary long before Disney bought the rights. The most obvious example is probably the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, who were specifically inspired by the Viet Cong who fought against America in the Vietnam War. That's according to George Lucas in a 2004 commentary. And then there's Padme's line about democracy dying to the sound of thunderous applause, which was apt in 2005's Revenge of the Sith, and is probably more appropriate today. In the same film, Obi-Wan remarks that only the Sith deal in absolutes, which was intended as commentary on George W. Bush's, good gracious, George W. Bush's Iraq war policies. On this show alone, we have already discussed the social commentary of the Knights of the Old Republic comics, on issues like racism, classism, genocide, imperialism, and many more. And we haven't even really dug into Knights of the Republic or its sequel, The Sith Lords, yet. But you get the point by now, we're sure. What does all this have to do with Jahani and what makes her important? It shows that Star Wars has always made these types of statements and that rep- representation makes all players feel included, not just straight white guys like me. And if that's not important, then I don't know what is. So... Back in the game, when Revan returns to the Enclave with whichever companions were unfrozen when Jahani was redeemed, he's greeted by cheers all around. Belaya is excited, Bastila was congratulatory, and the Masters believed it to be a positive omen for Revan's future in the Jedi Order. Hell, even Virk Lamar says something nice to Revan, which feels weird. After all that running around, Revan is finally admitted into the Order as a Padawan. Unfortunately, there are no more cutscenes or montages because we really wanted to see Revan get his Padawan braid and take classes with the other younglings. We're imagining a Billy Madsen situation where a mid-30s Revan is learning from Master Dakar with the younglings who are all the Jedi equivalent of third grade. Honestly, an entire Billy Madsen-style Revan movie looks like the scene where Obi-Wan confers with Yoda, who is teaching the Jedi kids in Attack of the Clones. Yeah, could be fun. I imagine you put James Franco in that role. But... Now that we're finally free of the main quest on Dantooine for a few moments, it's time to do all those side quests we've been glossing over. Finally, we can help that one lady with her sex droid. Across a bridge just outside the Enclave, a woman named Elise flags Revan and his companion Sam for help. Let's say that uh, T3 and Candrus are his companions since we did their profiles earlier. Elise is distraught because her companion is missing. After a little detective work, Revan finds out that by companion, Elise means the protocol droid that her husband built and she now treats as a companion after her husband's death. At one point, Elise even says she needs C8 back so badly because his absence gnaws at me like a gaping wound, end quote. It becomes clear that Elise uses C8 as a stand-in for her late husband in every way, including sex, that she's losing touch with reality, and that she's become isolated due to her obsession with C8. When Revan does talk to C8, the droid is distraught, he doesn't want to have his warranty continually voided, and he's really worried about Elise's deteriorating mental health. She explains that he fled to give Elise the space she needed to start again, which obviously failed. 
then the droid asks Revan to destroy him, tell Elisa it was Cathans, and hopes she will start her life over. So Revan does the only light side thing he can. He agrees to mercy kill an elderly woman sex droid and lie about it to help the woman move on. Seriously, that's the light side choice. You know, usual Jedi stuff. After Revan lies to Elise about the Cathans, she runs off toward the Jedi Enclave in tears, though she is later found in much better spirits after developing a healthy relationship with a human named Samt. I'm going to be honest. When we, when I started this episode, the first thing I I made a note about wanting to write was the sex droid because I didn't remember I didn't remember the names of the characters, but I remembered this damn sex droid side quest because it was so. Oh, it's fun. Oh, Karth Karth just keeps laughing at the woman to her face. It's I mean you know it's mean, but at the same time, like you know, what are you gonna do? Revan and company completed a number of other side quests while on Dantooine that the Jedi should have cleared up years ago, including dispute resolution for the Sandral Matal feud and taking out some Mandalorian criminals. The Sandral Matal feud was particularly tedious because the two families have been feuding over perceived slights and then involved their children in the affair. However, after the elder Sandral kidnapped Shin Matal in retaliation for the perceived kidnapping of his son, Cassius Sandral, well, it turns out that Cassius actually died uh, after trying to investigate the Rakatan ruins when some Cathounds got hold of him. Then Rahasia Sandral pleaded with Revan to free Shin Matal from her father's custody because the two had fallen in love. Of course, Revan helps the star-crossed lovers reunite after breaking Shin out, then brokered a truce between the patriarchs of the Sandral and Matal clans in order to allow Shin and Rahasia's love to continue and put a stop to a silly feud between old men. The Mandalorians were a little bit trickier, but that's okay. There's the Law and Order side quest where Revan has to question two suspects and a bunch of witnesses to find out who killed a murdered settler. After hours of running around and interviews and the Jedi overseeing the whole thing being totally unhelpful, it turns out both of them committed a crime. Rickard was out hunting and accidentally shot Handon, who had previously killed Calder. Also, Rickard was planning to murder Calder in cold blood, and oh, good heavens, why are the side quests on Dantooine so annoying? The Mandalorian raiders have been stealing supplies, and now they even killed a settler. So the Jedi Council sends Revan to investigate something that should have been dealt with a long time ago. After hunting down and killing all the Mandalorians in the surrounding area, Revan runs into their leader, Shurik. The Mandalorian took up mercenary work after the wars and now likes to kill Jedi and collect their lightsabers. We don't call him saying anything about them being a fine addition to his collection, but he very mel- he very well may have. Anyway, Revan and Candorus and T3 take out Shurik. Ordo has no qualms with this because he's Candorus and relishes a good fight. After completing these and many other tedious side quests, Revan and Bastila speak to the Council who send them off on a mission to investigate the strange ruins flowing with dark side energy. Also, a Jedi named Nemo was sent to investigate and hasn't returned. Hi. Bastila finally becomes a party member again, and she heads off with Revan to investigate whatever those strange ruins happen to hold. There's a third companion, but they're inconsequential here. As our heroes approach, they notice the ruin has strange stone columns 
leading to the entrance where an ancient stone door guards a grassy mound. Oh, this wouldn't be an RPG without taking time out for it. From a time-sensitive mission to talk about feelings with our companions, so Revan and Bastila stopped for a chat. They each note how uncomfortable their bond seems because it is so personal, to the point of even linking their dreams. The vision they both shared of Revan and Malak entering the ruins was strange because it not only seemed to be showing the duo where they needed to go, but also gave off a presence through the Force. Revan says he doesn't like the idea of Bastila being in his dreams, and Chan responds in kind, Are you so certain it is not you in my dreams? Quote, Why dream of this place, though? They have no connection to it, and the Jedi barely even knew it was there. It soon becomes clear, at least to Bastila and Revan, that the Force may be manipulating them toward a goal or place. We've joked about how the Force has a mind of its own and how events seem to push Force sensitives in a certain direction or even to a specific place. Bastila, however, dismisses any possibility of convenience or even luck. Quote, the force often seems to cause events that bend the laws of probability, especially with those that are strongly affiliated with it. End quote. When Revan questions whether this means that Jedi lack free will, Bastila replies that Jedi have agency to make choices along the way, but they'll still end where the force is. Where the force wills, regardless. This sounds more like, you know, space Calvinism or some kind of predestination than any kind of free will, but now we're too deep into the theological weeds. After this debate about the nature of the Force, Revan proceed inside the ruin and make the greatest archaeological discovery in the history of the galaxy far, far away. Inside the ruins, our heroes are met by an ancient droid. After several failed attempts to communicate, the droid finally cycles into a dialogue that Revan and Bastila can understand, a dialect of the Selkath language from Manon. The droid relays a lot of uh, a lot via exposition. The ancient ruin is actually a temple. The droid is more than 20,000 years old, and its builders were, were once the leaders of a pangalactic infinite empire that counted dozens of species as slaves. These so-called builders were technologically superior to all others, and if the droid's calculations are correct, they ruled the galaxy some 5,000 years before the Jedi Order or the Republic were founded. Basila and Revan run through some suspects for who these builders could be, but neither the Sith nor the Huts match the description. The droid was placed there by the builders to aid in the construction of the temple and star map, but now serves to assist those seeking the knowledge of the Starforge. Bastila and Revan ask more questions about the Starforge, but the droid isn't programmed with that information and instead directs them to complete the two tests created to determine if they are worthy of learning that knowledge. Those who are unworthy are terminated by the temple itself, like the Jedi Nemo, who's dead in a crumpled heap in the corner. Looks like the Jedi Council won't need any additional help finding Nemo. I'm a dad. I can make that joke. Anyway, Revan and ba- Revan Bastila and whoever and whoever easily pass the two tests. Each begins with a fight against a battle droid and then a riddle. The West Terminal asks the player to identify the three types of death-giving biomes, while the East Terminal asks for the three types of life-giving biomes. If you just answered desert, volcanic, and barren for death-giving, and oceanic, grassland, and arboreal for life-giving. Congratulations, you're worthy about learning about the Starforge. I feel they could have maybe used a botanist or an ecologist on there, but I'm just biased no, towards desert. No, not in okay. Star Wars. Everything everything <laughs> has one biome. 
Star Wars. One, we can't have one. two on the same That's planet. Like, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's great. It, um, I mean, it, it, it like they're finally going to show, I think they're finally going to show the indoor isn't just all trees, which like, I mean, I don't care if it is, but it's just really funny if like it's all trees and Tatooine is all sand. Like there's nothing else. There's nothing else on these planets. Anyway. It's, it's one of the most fantastical parts of it, I think. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, so the star map is a circular projection of an astrogation chart that Bastila deduces can lead them to finding the Star of Forge, whatever the hell it is. At this point, Bastila and Revan both believe it's possibly some sort of weapon or possibly a factory, but they know they have to find it. If Revan and Malik used this map five or years earlier to find the Star Forge, Revan and his companions can too. The star map has four other worlds highlighted, Korriban, Kashyyyk, Tatooine, and Manan. Revan and Bastila infer that the worlds listed contain similar clues, which they will use to find the Star Forge just like Revan and Malik. Immediately, the group returns to the Enclave Council, who are deeply troubled to learn these shocking revelations, especially since they were like a five-minute walk from the Enclave. Revan and Bastila get stuck in a cutscene going back to the Ebon Hawk, while the Masters search the archives for any record of a Star Forge. Once they finish, it turns out that they couldn't find that name in any of their records. Thus, the Council tasks Revan with finding the vaunted Star Forge and discovering the secrets to the Sith War Machine, but he won't be going alone. He will have Bastila, and all the other companions we found on Terrace, and Jahani has asked to accompany Revan too, since he did redeem her after all. The Masters implore Revan, Bastila, and their companions to hurry and find the Star Forge as the Jedi numbers dwindle by the day. Brooke Lamar is predictably an ass again, and we say goodbye to our most cherished teacher, Zara Weston. Don't worry, we'll be back to Dantooine once more before the end of the game to tie up loose ends and complete side quests. As for now, we're going to Tantooine in search of the second star map. Why are we going to Tantooine first? We'll talk about that next time. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we'll find out why Tatooine is covered in hated sand, learn the history of the Rakata, and kill Kalo Nord for dressing like the Red Baron. Also, the canonical order of planets in Kuku. It's the Old Republic, and we introduce the best droid in Star Wars history, HK-47. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to FOTOR on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at FOTORPOD or email us at FOTORPODCAST.com. Send us questions and comments. We will answer them on the show. If you send us a screenshot of a review you left... And then a direct message to that, to Photorpod, we can send you stickers, too, for the podcast. Super neat. All right. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.